0: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host Schneer Zalman Newfield. For years, American Jewish philanthropy has been celebrated as the proudest product of Jewish endeavors in the United States, its virtues extending from the local to the global, the Jewish to non-Jewish, and modest donations to vast endowments. Yet, as Leela Lila Corwin Berman uh, illuminates in The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi Billion Dollar Institution, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. The history of American Jewish philanthropy reveals the far more complicated reality of changing and uneasy relationships among philanthropy, democracy, and capitalism. Corwin-Berman uncovers how capitalism and private interests came to command authority over the public good in Jewish life and beyond. Uh, Lila Corwin-Berman is professor of history at Temple University, where she holds the Murray Friedman Chair of American Jewish History and directs the Feinstein Center for American Jewish History. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure.
1: So there are kind of two answers to that question. Um, And first, I'll give you what I think of as sort of the straight up academic answer. And frankly, it's a little obnoxious in my opinion. But I was finishing my second book, which is about um, Jewish liberalism and urban politics after World War II. And in that book, I specifically look at the city of Detroit and the movements that Jews made through the city and then outside of the city that were sort of part of the patterns that people call white flight. And near the end of the book, um, as I was reflecting on the kinds of connections that Jews who had left the city continued to have to to the city, so living in suburbs, how were they relating to the city? Um, it was notable to me that many of their connections had to do with philanthropy with giving charitably to endeavors that were happening in the city. And this was a way of kind of what I was arguing um, of retaining a sense of a kind of urban directed politics. Okay, that was the point I wanted to make. And I wanted the footnote that said, in fact, this is not so strange because in the United States, philanthropy is really kind of the most important way that Jewish communal life operates, it structures it. Uh, so I went looking for the book that I could footnote or the article and I didn't find what I wanted. I didn't find the kind of um, richly analytical and um, you know interpretive history of the meaning of philanthropy for American Jews. I found institutional histories, I found kind of celebratory narratives, um, but I didn't find what I wanted. And so it was just clear to me that this was a, a kind of study that needed to be done. Um, living in the moment, especially that we are living in when we see so many ways that philanthropy, not just in Jewish life, um, is really involved in kind of the, the politics of our country. So that's part of the answer. And um, I always do feel like it's a little bit obnoxious to say, well, I found the project and writing a footnote, right? I mean, what is more <laughs> academic to say? Um, It's not a lie. That is true. But the other piece of it um, is that I grew up in a middle-class home in Poughkeepsie, New York, and in a Jewish home, and never really reflected on the ways in which um, private wealth, designated philanthropically, really delimited so many of my experiences as a Jew and as an American. Um, And when I started to kind of think about what that calculation would look like, it was striking to me, like here is this thing that has um, you know invested in me as a person that has directed all sorts of choices I've made, it paid for my graduate education, continues to pay part of my salary, right? And why you know, it just seemed natural. I just had never thought about it um, in any kind of deep way. And it really was striking to me that I think in general, you know I'm always interested in the things that seem most natural to us. And, and why do they seem so natural? And, and what do they actually mean? So, my own kind of connection in this system that I eventually have, you know, wrote about um, certainly, I think, motivated me to feel like I wanted to understand how this structure worked. How was it so much more than, you know, a check that somebody gets to help fund a trip to Israel or whatever it might be?
0: Right. Well, speaking of the personal connection, before we go into the kind of substance of your book, I'm curious um, if you were concerned that your research in Jewish Jewish philanthropy could reinforce kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jews and money. Was this something that you were concerned about and how did you kind of approach this issue?
1: Absolutely. Um, and to be perfectly honest, there were a few times when I thought, I think I need to walk away from this. <laughs> uh, because of that, I mean, you know, quite seriously. So um, it was it was something that I thought about a lot. Right. You know, in, in what ways that. Um, you know, could this study potentially reinforce ideas that were really, you know, vile ideas about Jews and conspiracy and money and domination and things like that? So, so that was something that concerned me, certainly. But actually, I think more significantly, I realized it was something that concerned my subjects as well, right? And that part of what I was learning is that there was this uh, kind of tension in the history itself and in how various Jews in the United States who operated through different philanthropic mechanisms, how they thought of philanthropy both as an incredible tool of American civic belonging, right? Like what is more American than being part of a kind of philanthropic association? You know, it's it's the bowling league. It's the benevolent charitable association it's very American. It's, it's a way of belonging. And yet for Jews, this kind of fear that some of the concerns, the the sort of populist concerns that have really been consistent in American life about private wealth having public power would have a kind of particular um, sort of valence or or toughness when it had to do with thinking about Jews who already have kind of raised these concerns about private power operating through, you know, to, to achieve public domination. So that they themselves had that concern. And, you know, there are other folks whose writing I really relied on who've been talking about how important it is to really uh, have a kind of straightforward and clear headed approach to doing Jewish economic history, that it makes no sense to let a kind of concern that, you know, well, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism around this, therefore sort of deflect attention from it. That if anything, this means that, you know, really kind of good critical scholarship about these questions, whether about the myths or about material realities, whatever it might be, um, is is incredibly important. It's not I have no misconception that this is going to dissuade anti-Semitism. And I should tell you also, I have received, um, you know, sort of persistent feedback from various places that I am fueling anti-Semitism. So there are people who have that concern for certain um, but I think that at the end of the day, our ability to really understand how structures of, of political economy, of money, of finance, of policy uh, work, allow us to have a much sort of deeper appreciation of what the past is and allow us to ask important and critical questions about where
0: we want the future to go.
1: So, so yeah, I worried. I worry about a lot of things. That was one of
0: them. <laughs> Well, that, I think that's a really great answer. Uh, uh, so, to, to set the stage a bit for for, for this discussion, um, uh, you're talking uh, primarily uh, about Jewish philanthropy. How do you distinguish between Jewish and more general philanthropy in the American context? It's
1: a great question. Um, so, the the basic answer is that. I don't worry about that too much, right? Um, and I would worry about it more if I thought that there were some really very distinctive ways in which the structure of American Jewish philanthropy operates. But actually, what I found in my research is that, well, some, you know, some of the motivations certainly, um, and and some of the, you know, ways in which identity is kind of formed through philanthropic work, there's there's certainly like specific ways in which various American Jewish communities operate through philanthropy, but the structure of it, it doesn't really vary much from the structure of other American philanthropic entities. Um, and that to me was actually a really important and striking thing to, to realize that American Jewish philanthropy was really, um, you know, what we can think of as a kind of artifact of the American state, of American state policies and laws. Um, meaning that some of the histories that I would encountered that were really trying to talk about you know how exceptional and tied to ideas of uh, you know Sadaka and you know Jewish charitable notions and sort of you know ancient traditions, Judaic values whatever that might be that that could be rhetorically quite interesting but when you look at the actual fundamental structures of American Jewish philanthropy, um, they really do reflect, the policies of the American state. And so that means that although I think, you know, there are ways in which it's important to be descriptively accurate about how American Jewish philanthropy operates, um, trying to kind of parse out, okay, this one is just American and this one is Jewish philanthropy. You know, one of the things that's so so interesting in in reading about people who do try to do that work. Is, for example, um, if there's a charitable foundation that gives money to a hospital in Cleveland, that's not Jewish philanthropy, right? If the same charitable foundation gives money to a hospital in Tel Aviv, in Israel, in Israel, suddenly that's Jewish philanthropy. Why? (laughs) Right? So you know, we could talk about why and why not and whatever, but um, you know, so that kind of demarcation ends up, I think, being an interpretively really interesting thing to dig into. But in terms of a kind of empirical uh, piece piece of what I'm doing, I, I don't think the distinction is all that important.
0: Right. I I certainly hear what you're saying. Um, I'm curious, given um, what you just said about the kind of fluidity of the definition or the demarcation uh, between Jewish philanthropy and other forms of philanthropy, is there a sense of just uh, the kind of the total value uh, in monetary terms of the American Jewish philanthropy? I mean, just how big of an operation are we talking about here?
1: So the valuations that I have seen really, really vary. Um, there was a, an important kind of study that this reporter who was at the Forward did, um, maybe now it was five years more, probably eight years ago, Josh Nathan Casas, and he said something like $26 billion. Um, there is a researcher who did a whole bunch of empirical work first at Brandeis, and now she's actually at the Ruderman Foundation. And she has valued it in a closer to $50 billion. Um, one of the really, you know, one of the reasons this calculation is impossible is because we're talking about the philanthropic system, which, as I, you know, kind of learned about in doing this book, is resistant to being fully transparent in that way. So, um, you know, there's plenty of, for example... Uh, One of the important Jewish foundations that now is no longer in existence, the Andrea and Charles Broffin philanthropies, which gave lots of different money to all sorts of Jewish programs for, you know, well over a decade, two decades, I think. Um, A lot of that money passed through a donor advised fund. And we talk about if anyone's interested, I'm obsessed with the history of donor advised funds, but for the purposes of our conversation now, what that means is that it wasn't always clear actually how much money that foundation was allocating how they were allocating it not because they were lying or doing anything that was outside the boundaries of the system far from it this was absolutely sanctioned by the system but when you give money in certain ways there's no accounting for it as specifically coming from a particular individual or a particular foundation um, so what that leads me to believe is that the the total is likely much higher than we're actually able to know, but that then we would have to ask lots of questions about you know, what might make something Jewish philanthropy or not. So a lot of the funds that are held in uh, the Jewish Communal Fund, which is a huge uh, public charitable organization in New York City that holds lots of different funds, those are not um, all allocated to anything that I think by any stretch we could call Jewish philanthropy. And yet do we take those funds in the aggregate, which are quite substantial, as Jewish philanthropy. So you'll see, you know, I mean, the, the, the numbers are fascinating to me, but the totals are less so.
0: <laughs> right. I, I totally understand. And certainly, it's clear, regardless of exactly how you define the parameters of Jewish philanthropy, we're talking about a, f- a very large uh, sum, very large sums of money. Um, so uh, you talk about the American Jewish philanthropic complex, you call it a complex. What, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, right. So I wanted when I was starting to write the book, so this was after I'd done a lot of research and, you know, you go through this process and you have like so many different pieces in your head. Right. And then you have to try to think of what the, what the scaffolding is, what's the framework. And I wanted some kind of, um, you know, whether it was a metaphor or or some way, almost like a, a picture to help me think about and and explain and communicate how all these different pieces I had studied were tied together. And I thought about complex um, because it has at least three different sort of valences to it, right? So one is very much in my mind as I was doing this research and I was noticing noticing a kind of transformation that happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, I kept on thinking about uh, the idea of the military industrial complex. Sorry. So, you know, um, Dwight Eisenhower gives this important speech uh, in the early 1960s about uh, his concerns about the ways in which there was a sort of complex relationship of government, of private industry and of uh, war making. And that if there was no way in which these different entities had any kind of separation, that there would be a kind of recursive food feedback loop. Right So his concern, and he's sort of giving this almost as a farewell address uh, you know right at the end of of his term, his concern was that there there was a kind of feedback loop where public and private power were really merging um, in in a way that was going to be very difficult to disentangle. And so that was really on my mind as I was working on this book and learning you know a lot of what I was learning that this same kind of, you know, idea of what is public, what is private, what is the space in between, right? Not the government, not the individual, not private industry, but this kind of area in between and, and who, who stands to benefit from it, who stands to be exploited by it, all of those different questions. So there's one piece of like trying to kind of think about that sort of recursive feedback loop um, that, that was really important, you know, and that's part of how something starts to feel really natural. Right. It becomes very hard to ma- imagine your way outside of it when it seems like these things are so connected, like, you know, who would pay for X if we didn't have this and, and, and how, how would it work? So that was one piece of the idea of a complex. The other thing that was just like totally striking to me and, and had been before this project um, is kind of like the, the alphabet soup of Jewish organizational life. Right. So, you know, the way in which unless you're an insider, you know, when I say AJC, AJ Kong, JDC, whatever it is, I'm saying, uh, you have no idea what these organizations are exactly. And it doesn't you know, it's not self-evident how all of these acronyms and these names and then noticing that Jewish federations, which were these umbrella charitable and are still umbrella charitable organizations geographically located. Um, their names changed constantly all the time they're changing their names and different acronyms Um, you know so this sense of this kind of like complexity and obfuscatory nature of you know and not not because there was a design some grand plan but because you know this all sort of developing um, you know in in this kind of fashion of of lots of different attempts and experiments and names and Uh, you know, this kind of complexity. And yet all of these organizations are sort of all participating in this same structure. And that then tax law, which I realized was really important to understanding philanthropy, um, is its own obfuscation, right? I mean, I don't even like try to do my own taxes, which is ironic, I'm very interested in tax law. Um, But it's really hard. It's really, and I got so interested in reading tax code as a historical document. Um, Not only to understand, you know, what the hell was it saying, but also like how was it being said and when did you need interpreters and what role did those interpreters play? And then the final piece of complex that I thought was really um, compelling was, you know, of course, when we talk about a complex, we also think of a psychological condition. And and this was really evident to me. and, And I just touched on it a tiny bit when you asked me the question about anti-Semitism. Um, there was a lot of uh, psychological complexity involved in what it meant for American Jews to be raising money, to be uh, pursuing different kinds of financial policies, especially holding back charitable dollars, building large endowments, um, and how this intersected with concerns, especially after World War II and after the Holocaust, about survival, right? You know, and about trauma. and how did how did dollars, come to stand in for something of a, you know, a, a kind of painful, brutal hope that, that the Jewish people, whatever, you know, that meant in a particular context, that, that, that they would continue, that they would survive the idea of imperpetuity as a financial mechanism, and also as a value. Um, so that was the last piece. And so, you know, complex seemed to, to carry a lot of weight. Um, but I've gotten pushback, uh, you know, it, you know, I think it's, It's
0: a heavy term. Right, right. Um, So your book charts the evolution of Jewish philanthropy in America, really starting from the the 1800s. And you talk about the incorporated associations um, that proliferated in 19th century America. Um, What were they exactly and why did they proliferate at that time?
1: Yeah, so... um, here's the problem, right? So you have this young nation, right? And it pretty quickly says, okay, here's how we're going to define citizenship, right? Citizenship is available to any alien who's a free white person, which meant male. Um, That doesn't actually solve all that much, because that's federal policy in 1790. And actually, citizenship tended to to be a state-based affair. Um, But you had, you know, there's some idea, some political kind of theory Um, from from a kind of classically liberal idea that the individual was a citizen. And what that meant is that the rights of being a citizen would flow through the individual, right? This is different from a kind of status-based idea of citizenship, where if you're a member of a certain class, you get certain rights designated to you, right? In theory, the the idea is that you have like individuals and the individuals get particular rights. And then you have a government and you have a state, whatever it might be. And that that is in the the structure in charge of apportioning rights. Um, but really quickly, in fact, you know, even well before the founding of this country, um, there's a problem of like everything in between, right? So setting aside all of those people, in fact, the majority of people who are on American soil who don't fit that individual model, right? They're not deemed to be properly individual to be citizens. So that's a big problem. You also have All of these different organizations of people, of sociability, that don't fit an individual model, right? And the most striking one is is religious congregations, right? So very quickly, uh, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century, there's a question of, you know, how do these different kinds of organizations that exist in, in the United States, none of which is given the kind of superior position in federal law, Right. Although some states do have established religions, in fact, most did. Um, you know, how how does the kind of government see these different groupings of individuals? Right. What 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 should their status be? Um, and and part of the question is that they, they could issue a great threat. Right. If you have these non governmental organizations of people, um, what about the rule of the majority who are vo- who are voting? Right. Could this kind of contravene democracy? And, and also, you know, how could these different organizations come to kind of become their own little states, their own governments? And for a young nation, this is a problem, right? And so what quickly develops is this idea of associationalism, right? The idea that the government can't just let all of these organizations sort of exist freely, But it can sort of designate them in law as having a certain kind of it's not personhood, although it eventually corporate personhood that, you know, which we know now from from all sorts of things in the headline that becomes really important in the late 19th century. Right. Like what rights do these corporate entities have? Um, But the idea that especially kind of first tested on religious groups, that if you're a, a congregation of people, if you kind of announce your standing by incorporating by filing for a state charter, there are certain benefits that you will get. And in turn, you allow yourself to be visible and disciplined in certain ways. So there's a kind of discipline and, and there's a kind of support that happens. So different uh, religious organizations, you know, churches, uh, incorporate and they, they get state standing. That means they can appear in court, they can sue and they can be sued. Um, and they also are able to, um, you know, define themselves as getting certain state benefits, most especially exemption from property taxes. Um, and this system of the American state being able to see, kind of have, have associations be visible and have some kind of control over them, but also, you know, not regulating the, the specific ideologies of them becomes really, really important. And in fact, one of the things that I think is just you know, fascinating and troubling is that um, Black church organizations are able to get this kind of standing so they can incorporate, they can have standing when it comes to legal matters, they can get property tax exemptions, um, even as their congregants were unable to gain citizenship, right? Right. So it's an interesting kind of structure how this works. And although this is first kind of experimented with in the realm of religion and and the process, really, of the disestablishment of religion, right? You know, how were all these churches and congregations going to exist? It becomes a sort of model for associational life more broadly, right? Whether it's political associations, charitable associations, whatever it might be. And the idea of an exemption from taxation becomes really really important because it's it's the carrot and the stick that the that the state whether it's state governments or eventually the federal government uh, is able to
0: have. So, so, what was the logic behind the idea that these uh, associations shouldn't have to pay taxes? Individuals pay taxes. What was the logic that when you, you know, if one individual doesn't have to pay taxes, but if you bring a hundred of them together, then they, they, then they don't have to pay taxes? What was the logic behind uh, uh, asserting that uh, these associations would be exempt from some forms of taxes?
1: Right. So, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is there is no federal income tax. First, it is uh, attempted in the late 19th century, and it's not passed until the 16th Amendment in 1913. Right. So, the kinds of taxes that individuals would have had to pay um, would have been certain kinds of tariffs. Right. Would have been, you know, based on consumer goods, um, and in in many cases, only for people who were wealthy would have been based on property ownership. So we're really if we're thinking still in the late or sorry, in the early to middle 19th century, um, that's what we're talking about. So what was the logic, though? Right. Because we know you can look at, you know, a map of New York City from 1820 and look at all of the synagogues and churches that are scattered throughout. They were, you know, real property holders. Right. So so what did this mean? So it actually comes from the sort of trace of an established religion, which is really, there's so many ways in which one of the biggest lies we've been fed is the separation of church and state in this country. Right. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, so you have all of these different congregations and these, these churches who, who own property, right. And who are not designated as, as the established religion of, you know, of the United States, but the kind of carryover from English common law, that's really important in framing our, our, judicial system, um, was that there were certain kinds of entities that were um, synonymous with the state. Right. And of course, when you're talking about England, one of those entities was the church. And so the Church of England would not be taxed on its property because it was the state. Right. The state doesn't tax itself. That was, you know, a, a, a kind of arm of the state. So that is kind of exported into this idea that, um, you know, these different religious organizations that exist in the United States, um, although they're not totally coterminous with the state, um, they occupy this position that starts to be described as the public good, right? That, you know, there is something about them that is very enriching of American life, um, and that it is sort of on the balance side, tilted more public than anything else. It's not the same as you know, somebody owning a large estate, an individual owning a large estate. And so this exemption from taxation carries through that kind of basic idea. It then is expanded with ideas of uh, equal application so that no one religion is supposed to get the exemption over another. Right. They're all supposed to be treated you know, equally and, and that this would kind of help move forward. This idea of a particular kind of disestablishment of religion Um you know, and at the same time, this is a lever that the state then has to have some power, right? Because there are things you need to do if you are a congregation and you're getting a tax exemption. For example, there were limits on the amount of property you could own, right? This is a way of controlling um, you know concerns about churches becoming too large, especially when there are more and more Catholic immigrants come, and the Catholic Church is expanding in the United States. So there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, how much dominance the Catholic church might start to have. So there are limits. Um, there are rules about the kind of board that that a congregation has to have, that there have to be lay members, right? There can't be clergy who start to be all powerful, right? So it ends up being this kind of, you know, mechanism that sculpts behavior, which is how taxation works, actually, in our country, which is why it's totally fascinating, right? It, it, it tells you to have children in various ways, right? It tells you to buy a house sometimes. I mean, so, so it, it kind of functions in this way to give the state a sort of opening to to have something to do with this,
0: right? And what kinds of associate Jewish associations uh, existed starting in the nineteenth century? I mean, what what kinds of associations, um, you know, what were what what were their 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 missions? What areas of life were they dealing with?
1: Yeah, so. There were certainly religious associations, right? So, you know, different synagogues. And, you know, one of the things that happens and you can see playing out through this kind of associational framework is so you have one congregation, right? And, and the members start to fight with each other. And they, in fact, want to sue each other because they think that, you know, some group is violating, um, you know, whatever it might be. They're, they're not uh, adhering to a certain religious principle correctly. And because of this kind of legal standing, those cases can go to court. And they do. And in many cases, the judges say, you know, settle this yourself, we're not going to get involved. But this actually allows for the proliferation of a kind of diversity of Jewish congregations, right, as opposed to having like, you know, just a few very centralized synagogues. um, There are these constant breakaways. And because the threshold to gain incorporation is pretty low, it's accessible, you know. I don't know. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like, you know, that you want to play this kind of music in a service, or that you want women to do this or that or the other thing. I'm going to go create my own, right? And that was often. And then, you know, so the assets could be divided in particular ways, right? There was a kind of, you know, administrative mechanism for that happening. So there's one set. Um, there are also over time. So by, you know, certainly 1840s, right? Jewish fraternal organizations like B'nai B'rith is is really the most important one. So organizations um, that are meant to do a few things, right? They're meant to kind of um, be parallel to the sorts of fraternal organizations like Masonic lodges that existed in American life that were really important non-governmental and non-private organizations um, for men, for for American men, for American white men to participate in. but Jews were not allowed in those. Those were Christian-based organizations. Um, and so Jews start their own kinds of fraternal organizations for social reasons and also um, to create forms of private insurance so people could pay into these organizations. And if somebody um, you know, passed away and a widow was left or orphans were left, um, you know, this was a form of insurance. So, so they played both a social role and a kind of um, you know, mutual aid type of role. And then there are more and more purely benevolent associations. So, um, you know, the the kind of framework for this, I think, comes from burial societies, right, Um, which again, is a model of, you know, paying a certain amount of money in and then that money being designated to bury people, whatever their means might be at the end of life. Um, But other kinds of benevolent associations to help with feeding hungry people, to help with vocational training. And by the late 19th century, there's an explosion of these kinds of institutions. And this really runs parallel to what's happening, uh, you know, in American life more broadly. By the late 19th century, uh, the the kind of pace of new associations being formed in American life is is just at a really rapid clip. Um, There's just, you know, this sense of proliferation, and there's both great diversity in it, and a remarkable kind of similarity in the structures of these kinds of organizations, right? That they, you know, because they're adhering to this kind of basic model of how associational life works in the United States.
0: Right. And what was the model for these associations in terms of how much of the resources that they, that they were able to, to, uh, you know, to fundraise, did they actually disperse each year?
1: Um, so, you know, basically all of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a really different landscape in many ways. Um, the late nineteenth century, but all the way up till the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, even into the nineteen seventies, right? Um, so, mutual aid organizations were somewhat different, right? Because the point of them was to hold money for certain kinds of of emergencies, like insurance policies. So, they did have mechanisms to hold money and, and designate it for specific use. Um, But other kinds of charitable and mutual aid association and not mutual aid associations, but um, you know, synagogues, charitable, benevolent organizations. um, The, the model was that whatever money came in was being used to solve immediate kinds of problems. Right. And so, you know, there were constant fundraising campaigns to meet whatever the needs were that a particular organization was trying to meet. So, you know, in the case of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, right? Especially as the rate of immigration to the United States is really increasing and you have more and more newcomers arriving who need help with uh, navigating the bureaucracy, need help with finding where they're supposed to go to meet family, uh, need vocational training, whatever else it might be. Um, You know, these are cash-strapped organizations and, and the, the kind of fundraising pleas that they're making are to say, this is exactly how your money is being used, right? You know, we settled X number of immigrants. We paid for this many kosher meals. We you know, um, answered this many sets of correspondence about citizenship papers and all of this. So it's, it's really a model of um, need-based, you know, there's just a, a huge urgency of how this money needs to be used. And there are very, very small reserve funds or emergency funds being held back.
0: Right. So when uh, and why does the Jewish philanthropy sh- shift to a completely different model where the a great amount, if not the vast majority, of the funds that are raised each year are actually invested in endowments and kind of maintained By the philanthropic organization, rather than distributed out to you know to the public.
1: So this is a really big shift, and it's a cultural shift as much as a as a financial shift. I mean, to be certain, in other moments in history, there had been large funds that had been held by private you know individuals, by private corporations, whatever it might be, banking families, um, you know, that were lent out that gained interest. So we can think of that as investment, right? They were lent out to governments, they were lent out to, you know, different diplomatic ventures, whatever it might be. So it was not unheard of to, you know, to hold back funds and use it in a particular way. But when it came to the structure of American associational life and American Jewish charitable life, um, you know, as I said, by and large, the model was a kind of revolving door of funds coming in and funds going out. And in, in fact, this was so much so the case that when federations, right, which are really an important technology, and I think it's fair to call them a technology, that start in the late 19th century and proliferate in the first couple decades of the 20th century, um, that say, okay, there's a whole huge kind of busy chaotic landscape of Jewish charitable life, and there's, you know, constant pleas to, to fundraise, you know, give me money for this and for this, and it's too much. It's overwhelming people. It's not organized. It's not standardized. We need an umbrella organization where you give a, you know, a gift to, and we will allocate it according to, you know, what the board or what community members thought made sense. And it would be validated because the next year you'd be asked to give again. And as long as you thought that money was used, well, you were expected to give again. So when these are being founded, um, you know, in fact, in some of the most important ones, like like New York's Jewish Federation in the early 20th century, the bylaws say we are not going to hold back funds. And that, in part, is a response to the Rockefellers and to the Carnegies and the kind of populist rage about, you know, these wealthy, uh, you know, kind of gilded age magnets who are who are. Holding charitable resources, get you know, and claiming that they're going to give them at some point in the future, and and they say we are not a charity trust. We're not going to do that. We don't hold money back. There are urgent needs. You give, and we allocate, and that's that's the system, um, and that's that was incredibly important to the logic of how these organizations worked and to the role they played in the community. And it wasn't as if you know it was always a, a, an easy or um, you know. Th- that there was no kind of power plays involved in the allocations, right? People would argue and have great debates about that. but there were very small reserve funds. so much so that when the Great Depression hit, organizations you know emptied out everything they had really quickly. right? They really did had not held much back. And for some, part of the lesson of this is we really need more you know rainy day funds. We need more reserve funds. And, and so, you know, in the 30s and 40s, there are debates about increasing the limits of how much money could be held back. You know, can we hold bequests? Can we get legacies, things like this? Um, but there's a lot of debate and uncertainty about moving in this direction, because the idea is that this is money that should be spent, right? And there's a, a kind of philosophical um, commitment to the idea that the future doesn't, should not be ruled by the hand of the donor today, right? That- that this money should be addressing the problems we can see now. And how can we know what the future possibly will bring? Um, But this does start to change, and it starts to change notably after World War II. Um, And it changes for a few reasons. One is is a simple kind of economic reason that there are more Jews who are accessing middle-class professions, who are accessing education. Um, who are able to, um, you know, attain a kind of higher socioeconomic level in the United States. And so this means not only is there the possibility of more money entering this philanthropic system, it also means that the needs of Jews um, are, less, are less pressing. Um, you also have, of course, starting in 1924, but even, you know, efforts before that, a, a curtailed rate of immigration of Jews to the United States because of immigration restriction, And even, you know, after World War II, when there are some DPs who come in, the rates are nothing like what they were in the early 20th century. Um, So there's a kind of existential question, like we have all of these organizations so devoted to the idea that there are these pressing needs that need to be met. Um, And we now have the ability to access even more capital because of the standing of Jews. Um, But what are we going to do with this money? And what are we going to do with the fact that philanthropy and giving money has been so kind of embedded into sort of the identity of what American Jews do, how they organize. You know, maybe a quarter of American Jews went to synagogue, but many more gave money to Jewish things. This was identity work. And so in the 1940s and 50s, you have different Jewish leaders trying to figure out what to do with this system. Um, and and part of the answer becomes, and it's not just, you know, kind of in the minds of of Jewish leaders or Jewish organizations, but in fact, it's also in in changes of how American tax policy works. Um, You know, it becomes the idea that money could be held back, right? That there are ways in which not spending at all might be strategic. it, It might allow for a kind of planfulness, and it, it allows for a sense of a certain kind of future.
0: Right. And speaking of the tax, uh, tax law, what was the 1950 Congressional Revenue Act, and how did it specifically impact Jewish foundations?
1: Well, so there's a whole bevy of tax policy changes that happen after World War II. And there's basically a kind of contest between um, folks who are starting to be very suspicious about private foundations, right? which Jews, by and large, there are very few Jewish private family foundations until the 80s. Um, but a kind of suspicion about pockets of money, so Ford Foundation was a really big one after World War II, that there are these pockets of money that are, that are getting larger and larger, that are designated as charitable. And what what are they doing? What's happening? Remember, this is in the context of rising suspicious about, um, you know, any kind of private entity that might be operating counter to American government ideas. Right. This is during McCarthyism, during hearings about communism. Um, And part of that is Congress saying what is going on with these different kinds of pockets of private money and how do we make sure that we're regulating what they're doing and a, a lot of suspicion. So. There's simultaneously that kind of suspicion, but at the same time, there's a kind of expansion of the idea that the way that American um, social welfare policy should work, the way that the American state should work, is by entering into kinds of partnerships, what we think of as public-private partnerships, right? There are all these new programs coming out of the New Deal that are meant to give state revenue, and, and there's increased state revenue because the rate of taxation has increased um, you know, meant to, to kind of apportion it to a public, and that this can operate through different kinds of semi-public, semi-private organizations. So there's both a kind of concern about this space, what we call the nonprofit, right, between the public and the private, and there's a, there's a way in which it's being newly used. And in that kind of tension, um, what tax policy is trying to decide is what kinds of regulations need to be put on um, private stores of money that are not being taxed, right? What do they need to do? Because essentially that means that the public is investing in them, right? So if you're holding money, <coughs> sorry, if you're holding money, that's not, and, you know, and making money, investing on, on the money you're holding, and it's not being taxed, you can think of that as a public tax expenditure, right? So, so what is it that the government is... Going to start to regulate to make sure that that money is not being used to something that is contrary to, in the largest sense, democratic values? Um, And at the same time, how can the government really encourage and subsidize the growth of this sector that's going to help it apportion all of the different responsibilities to a growing public and to a public with various needs and to a public that is expecting, after the New Deal and, and with Great Society programs? The idea that, that there are social welfare needs that the state will meet. So in that kind of tension, one of the things that happens is there's a designation between private foundations, which are called private forms of charity, and public charity, which are seen as more public-minded. right? And so through the 50s and 60s and culminating in 1969, um, there are efforts to decide how to regulate these different kinds of charitable structures. And if you end up being designated on the more public side, um, you know, spoiler alert, you get more benefits from the government. And so by the late 1960s, Jewish charitable organizations, like other charitable organizations, realized that really the place to be in philanthropy is on that side of the division to prove that you are more and more on the public side. But in turn, if you're less on the public side and more on the private side, you do gain certain kinds of freedoms, because you're assumed more private.
0: All right. Well, as you promised early on in in our conversation, taxes, uh, the tax structures are really fascinating. And there is so much more that we could talk about. But before we let you go, I have a couple of of last questions. Um, for one thing, your book explores the balancing act for Jewish philanthropic organizations between distributing all of the resources they collect and holding on to them uh, in order to to grow capital for future giving. Um, uh, how are Jewish philanthropic funds used uh, these days? What percentage of the resources that are uh, raised each year are actually distributed um, you know within that year or, or shortly thereafter
1: well here's the thing because of this 1969 act um, private foundations are told they have to distribute 5% of the of the assets that they hold um, that number was sort of like a shot in the dark and in fact it was supposed to increase over time um, because according to calculations then and according to calculations at almost any other moment um, there's the ability to even keep your endowment at a steady rate and pay out more than that. But 5%, instead of becoming, and the assumption was this would be sort of the floor in a a way it becomes a ceiling. So when we think about private foundations, um, and there are some exceptions, you know, from time to time, it tends to be 5%. Uh,
0: I, I just thought that that's fascinating when I was reading your book and you mentioned that, um, that in the San Francisco, if I understood this correctly, the San Francisco Jewish Federation, ninety-one uh, percent of the funds are used for investment, and um, I, I just think that there's a lot to to unpack there in terms of what people, what the public, what the what the 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 Sort of donor class—the people who are contributing to these funds, uh, to these endowments or foundations—you uh, know—to what extent do they realize uh, just how much of the resources that they're contributing are actually being invested rather than distributed? As well as uh, as you frame your whole book, thinking about the relationship between capitalism and uh, um, and the public and the public interest—you know—to uh, what extent do people? Uh, you know, in general, think that the majority of charity should be reinvested rather than distributed to kind of immediate needs. But okay, uh, last question. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about a, a project that you're working on now, a new project.
1: Yeah, so I've gotten pretty interested in this idea of like, what is the relationship between different kinds of state structures and different forms of American Jewish life. And one of the things I've started to work on is ideas of citizenship. Um, so, you know, people tend to think, well, America was a really excellent place for Jews to come because Jews came here and were immediately granted citizenship. And I've been really interested in thinking about, you know, is citizenship an all or nothing thing like you have it or you don't? I mean, in fact, I think you can just look around the world and under uh, around our country and understand that people have different um, levels of citizenship in a sense. Right. And, you know, whether you're a man or a woman or, you know, where you live or what education system you're part of. Um, and so I've been starting to do some research on, you know, historically, how did American Jews in various times and places understand what it meant to be a citizen? And at what points did they feel as if their citizenship was being questioned? At what times did they lose citizenship, right? When were they expatriated? Um, And what were some of the kinds of concerns about ideas of loyalty, right? Especially uh, after the founding of the state of Israel, notions of, you know, could you be a citizen of two places? Could another nation state claim you as an automatic citizen? What does that mean for the quality of your citizenship? Um, And how does this relate to ideas of American national identity, ideas of liberalism, anti-Semitism, Um, so, so that's, that's where my head is, um, you know, and in many ways, I think it kind of presses at some of the questions that, that I explored in, in this book as well.
0: Right. Well, that sounds really fascinating. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks.
0: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.